WBZ original. So here Paula and I were sitting here 3 p.m. Yeah. ready to record our podcast. And he he's a no show. He wasn't even here. He's a <laughs> number one. He is not a John just gave me He a, just said uh, we're number one. Yes, John in gave me the response. John gave me a non-verbal response. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. It's Studio BZ, Season 2, Episode 8, and we're here in our Studio BZ lovely studio. Episode The Ocho. The Ocho. There you are. I'm and Paula Evans. I'm Leah Martin, along with uh, John Keller and John, the big scoop of the week, the first Senate debate. Last Friday, you had the first gubernatorial, then the first Senate debate, so we definitely want to get into talking about that. I was your trusty moderator for that one. I'll give you a little peek behind the scenes of the Warren Deal encounter. Always the best part. Also, how Boston is preparing for rising seas and climate change. The mayor with a big plan, big expensive plan he put out last week. And we have thoughts on that. Paula and I also interviewed the chairman of Dunkin' Donuts, Nigel Travis. How his business runs on conflict. Not just on Duck. You mean like me hating pumpkin flavor? <laughs> is that, what it, is that, that kind of conflict? He's going to have to deal with customers like John, and That's he tells excellent. us how he does that. I'm a big DD fan. <laughs> Friday night, the first of the Senate debate between Elizabeth Warren and her, her Republican challenger, Jeff Deal. John, you were the moderator, as you were for our first gubernatorial debate. Just quickly, what did you think? How did each of them do? Well, uh, you know, for Jeff Deal, uh, first time in a televised debate like this, uh, it had to be nerve-wracking, and he mm. did appear to be a little bit nervous when he walked in. Elizabeth Warren's been through this before. Uh, and the two were pleasant before we went on the air. They shook hands and mm-hmm. uh, greeted each other cordially. Uh, we, I had him shake hands a second time for the still photographers that we allow in beforehand, mm-hmm. and that went well. No problems they there. They agreed to obey you without question. They, they <laughs> did. They did. Although I have to say the first 20, 25 minutes of that debate were the best debate I have ever moderated because my idea of a great political debate is to have the candidates actually debate, mm-hmm. not do a sort of a joint interview funneled through a moderator or a panel of reporters, right. not talk past each other, but talk to each other, challenge one another directly, go back and forth. In other words, a debate. Mm. And that's exactly what they did. I asked one question, and the two of them went for 20 minutes uh, without repeating themselves, uh, shifting from topic to topic in the natural, organic flow of the conversation. And other than just making sure that uh, they didn't talk over each other and keeping an eye on roughly equal time... uh, you know, I was not inclined to step in and stop that. You were pretty I, hands off. I, I thought it was yes. very interesting. You were with Charlie Baker and Jay Gonzalez as well. So if you had to give Warren and Deal each a grade on how they did, I don't know if that's the way you like to break things down. But if you had to, what would you say? Well, I mean, I would get. I would certainly give a Deal a solid B. Uh, he uh, was well prepared. 
I thought he came across well. He kept his composure, even when he was under attack from Warren. You felt like he did what he had to do? I mean, yeah, I, I thought, uh, if anything, he might have exceeded expectations a little bit. A lot of people didn't know who he was. And just to see his presentation, it was relatively smooth, and the way he handled himself under pressure, I think you'd have to say, even if you didn't agree with a word out of his mouth, that this guy uh, put on a competent performance. And I would also give a B, I think, to Warren. Uh, it was interesting, uh, Liam and Paula, six years ago, I moderated the first Warren-Scott Brown debate. Mm-hmm. And in both of these debates, I asked basically the same question to lead off the debate. Is your opponent's character uh, an issue in the race? Right. Um, this gives them an opportunity, if they want to, to bring out all of the mud they've been fling at each other, the the Native American heritage stuff, Mm -hmm. her running for president, him being a Trump clone. And that's pretty much what happened. But I did notice one significant difference over six years ago. Back then, and Elizabeth Warren was the relative unknown uh, debating for the first time on on statewide TV. Uh, She, uh, he went first, Brown did, six years ago. And he came right out of the box with his answer. He pointed at Warren, look at her. She's obviously not Native American. He was, he was harsh and on the attack. Uh, and then when it got to be Warren's turn, she was like, well, first, I, I just want to say, I think Scott Brown's a nice guy. Mm. Then she calmly addressed the questions about her heritage. And you could sort of feel the air going out of the room there where he had come on super hot, maybe too hot for some, and she had handled it like a pro. Fast forward to this past Friday, same question, same order, deal went first. He wasn't quite as red hot as Brown had been, but he was he certainly— He started with ancestors. He was though. certainly on the attack. He brought up ancestry and her possibly running for president, all that stuff, and was certainly on the offensive. It got to her, and she tried to strip the bark off him. Yes. It was white hot. And I think that's an interesting difference. I mean, look, you can uh, analyze that any way you want. Six years of Elizabeth Warren down in that that cauldron down there, being attacked herself, dishing it out as good as she gets. She's a different person than she was six years ago. She's become such a national figure. We forget she had never run for public office before she ran for Senate, much like the president, and has learned much as President Trump has over time. I think another way of looking at that contrast is... Uh, uh, sort of the same thing. Yeah, she's been down there, but maybe has lost a little bit of her, I don't want to say charm, but a little bit of her personal touch Mm. and is more of the -the on-the-attack programmed politician. Again, people are going to disagree about what they saw and heard. That's the nature of it, but I thought it was an interesting contrast. Can I ask one more strategy question? Then we can get into some of the particular moments of the debate, but that seemed to me to be an odd choice. If you're up by 25 points and the polls show are up by that, don't you kind of do the Governor Baker routine of just sort of – Rope-a-dope. 
Yeah, you don't Plan necessarily attack. You don't want to create a headline. You basically mm-hmm. want it to be a snoozer. And instead, you're right. She came right at him. She interrupted him several times. What did you make of that? That's a perfectly reasonable question, but I think you got to look at the particulars here. First of all, uh, Elizabeth Warren's persona is not Charlie Baker's persona. Well, sure. Baker's whole thing is he's uh, that comfy cashmere sweater that you <laughs> throw on on a chilly Sunday morning, sure. right, while you're having your coffee, you know, <laughs> right. a little bland, boring. Boring, no drama. Yeah, Charlie Baker goes down smooth. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren <laughs> is, you know, she her whole brand is that she's the a fighting. And, yes, yeah. and if you take Deal's point, uh, which she didn't refute, about her, bless you, Paula, about mm. her running for president or, yeah. or, or planning right, on running for president. Right, she never denied, yeah. Perhaps in some ways that debate, which was carried nationally on Mm -hmm. C-SPAN, was a little bit of a dress rehearsal of her saying to people, this is what you'll get with a Liz Warren for president candidacy, which is white hot, strip the bark off the opposition, don't give an inch, take it right to them. So there may have been some calculation there. And and as I said before, it may just reflect where she's at personally and professionally at this point in time. Well, just briefly and not to get too much into it, but what have we heard from Democrats over the last month, like Eric Holder, that they've been too nice, they've been too accommodating, and maybe it's time to get as nasty as the president himself. Um, In terms of the the behind-the-scenes look, we also had the the across-the-street atmosphere before the candidates even came in. It was a busy weekend because the head of the Charles Regatta was going on across Soldiers Field Road, so that was very crowded. And then out in front of WBZ here, were hundreds of people doing standouts for each candidate, lots of signs. What was the atmosphere like, John, as people came into the building? You know, I think it was charged, no question about it. Politics these days is a blood sport. You know, thanks to the internet, big races, certainly Senate races. I remember covering the the Kennedy Romney race in 1994, where the atmosphere outside the debate halls was also very intense. Uh, But in the era of the internet, what was once just sort of excitement and energy has acquired, I think, kind of a nasty edge. Mm. Uh, There's a uh, sort of an ugly undertone to a lot of it. Now, I'm all of the, as far as I know, all the Warren and Deal supporters behave themselves. I don't want to imply otherwise, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it. Things have definitely gotten nastier over the years. Let's let's put it that way. Well, two of the big moments during the debate were Jeff Deal's response to question three. He sort of stumbled there on his response about transgender rights, and he repeatedly attacked Elizabeth Warren as trying to tee up a run for president before she's even re-won this Senate seat. And our Lisa Hughes was right at the exit to the building. Elizabeth Warren did not want to talk to the press after the debate, but Lisa Hughes was able to grab her in the hallway. And here's what Elizabeth Warren had to say about a couple of those moments. Senator, how did you feel it went tonight? Yeah, I feel good. Yeah? Uh-huh, yeah. What were the str- These are the issues I care about. I was glad to have a chance to talk about them. What was the strongest part of this debate, do you think, for the voters, to see the differences? Well, I was really shocked that Jeff Deal said that he supports um, taking away protection for transgender people here in Massachusetts. And I just don't think that's who we are in Massachusetts. I don't think we believe in discriminating against anyone. What was his strongest moment in this debate, if there was one? You know, um, 
I was glad to hear him talk about veterans. Uh, all three of my brothers are veterans. And I think whenever we can get more support for veterans, it's really important. It's something I work for a lot on the Armed Services Committee uh, and some legislation that I've been able to get through that's going to be really helpful to veterans. When you debate him the next time, what are you going to go after first? Look, there are two fundamental questions here. The first one starts with the fact that Jeff Deal has said that he will have Donald Trump's back 100% of the time. Now, he don't want to say that out in public. But that is exactly what he has said at a private function for Republicans. The second part, though, is the fundamental question in this race in 2018, and that is who does government work for? Is it only going to work for the wealthy and the well-connected, or is it actually going to work for the rest of us? Me? I think it ought to work for the rest of us. And when he asks about the presidential campaign and tries to hold you on that, what do you say? Look, I'm in this fight all the way. Um, I, I have been in this fight from the beginning, and I've, I've had some good success. I've gotten, gosh, since Donald Trump has been sworn in, I've gotten over a dozen uh, uh, proposals actually signed into law by Donald Trump. Uh, but let's face it, this country is going in the wrong direction, and Donald Trump is leading it there. I worry about what he's going to do and what he is trying to do on health care, on, on on, on just plain ugliness. And I worry about what he's doing on democracy. Um, I said that after the election, I would take a look. And some people in Massachusetts think, oh, that may not be a great idea. And I'm not sure if it is either. But this is what I know. I got in this race back in 2012 to fight for working families, to fight for a government, to fight for a Washington that doesn't just work for the rich and the powerful, but that works for the rest of us. And that's the fight I will be in. Senator, thank you very thank much. You. I really appreciate it. We should give a shout out to the mm -hmm. camera person who uh, was walking backwards down the hall the yes. entire time. Do we know Always which cameraman that I was? I don't know who it was, yes. but shout out to them. I think it actually might have been Pat, it might have been Pat Geiler. No, it wasn't Pat Geiler because he no. was with me. I don't know. John, what did you make uh, of think? her saying maybe it wasn't a great idea to say that I was going to potentially run for president? Well, look, the whole purpose of a trial balloon, which is what Warren floated when she said at her town hall, yeah, I'm going to take a hard look at it, mm. is to see which way the wind is blowing, right? That's why you float up a balloon. <laughs> And uh, since then, the reaction's definitely been mixed here in the state. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me one bit. Going back to the, the 1980s with Michael Dukakis running for president, we've had a long string of politicians who either started running for another office while they were in the middle of the term they were elected to or have quit office, Governors Weld and Salucci, mm -hmm. in order to to pursue, in Weld's case, and to take, in Salucci's case, ambassadorial appointments. And after a while, you're looking around at the other people in line with you, <laughs> DD, and you're saying, you know, you're kind of sniffing your armpits. <laughs> What's wrong with us? Why, why won't any of these people stick around and do the job they promised they would do in the term that we elected them to? So I think she's experienced a little bit of that backlash. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe she's hedging her bet a little bit. And you know what? There's a case to be made that it's a terrible idea 
for Elizabeth Warren to run for president, that wherever the country might be in two years from now, mm-hmm. it's a pretty safe bet they won't be in the market for uh, a, a very liberal Harvard Law School professor from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hello! Right. No matter how many times she mentions that her brothers were veterans. And it, right. And that if she wants to continue to be an effective senator, and, you know, she has a pretty good bully pulpit, as a senator there, she can get on national TV anytime she wants to promote her issues. But uh, if she's out there running for president as well, I mean, that's a full-time job. So, yeah, no wonder she's conflicted. Clearly, the phrase that she decided on and pulled out several times was that Jeff Deal said he would back President Trump 100 yeah. percent. She said that he said it privately to a group of Republicans at a private event. Yeah. Do you think that just shows her internal polling shows if she just hammers away at that, that's going to just turn off Massachusetts voters more than anything else? It, it's almost like the ultimate no-brainer. Why'd you even need a poll to know that? Right. Trump is as popular as a combination of a red wine stain and dog dew on your brand new white plush <laughs> carpeting, okay? And so you can't go wrong. Uh, hanging him around Jeff Deal's neck. And coming into this debate, I said it when we did our our previews in advance, this was going to be his big challenge uh, to try to grab the million votes that went for Donald Trump here in the 2016 election. Got to have every one of those, right? But then how to do so in a way that gives you a prayer of getting the five, six, seven hundred thousand additional votes you'd need to beat Elizabeth Warren. And so he's in a very tough spot. And you saw that in the debate. He he tried to sort of embrace Trump while also keeping him at so arm's length. So he wouldn't length. necessarily vote. It was that was a tough straddle. Wanted. Yeah, tough straddle. How much of a how much do you think he gets? Well, you know, I I have tried over the years to stay out of the business of rock solid predictions. Sure. I mean. And anybody that picked Mike Capuano to be a breeze for re-election yeah. most recently right. understands now that that's not a good th- thing to engage in. So, yeah, of course he has a chance. But uh, that would be the stunning upset to end all stunning upsets. And, you know, you look back and you say, well, you know, what business did Scott Brown have uh, beating Martha Coakley in the race after Ted Kennedy passed away for that Senate seat? But the fact is, uh, Brown had some things going for him that Deal does not. He had, first of all, an inferior opponent, with all due respect to poor Martha Coakley, but she was not a good candidate. And he had a very powerful issue at his back, which was the backlash against Obamacare. Right. And he ran hard on it. He stayed focused on it and eked it out. I and don't a think pickup truck. I, and, well, uh, of course, <laughs> and the pickup truck. I don't know what Deal drives. And a photo shoot. <laughs> but, right. Yes, at a photo shoot. Uh, somehow Deal doesn't strike me as the type that's going <laughs> to lay down buck naked on a bearskin rug. But I'd rather not find Whether out. Whether it has stains or not. Oh, boy. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. So last week, Mayor Walsh announced the city of Boston plan for tackling what to do around Boston Harbor to mitigate some of the water issues that are projected to be problems over the next few decades because of climate change. So Liam, you and I had Julie Wood 
into the studio, and she is uh, one of the directors of the Charles River Watershed Association. Of course, all our waterways are connected, and so this group has strong feelings about this plan. And the mayor laid out exactly what this plan will be. It's a multi-year plan, multi-billion dollars over that time frame. Comprehensive uh, vision. It's going to uh, try to protect residents, homes, jobs, the infrastructure along Boston's Harbor. It's a 47-mile stretch. And what this is going to be, it's going to be a series of retractable seawalls. They're going to raise some parts of the Boston waterfront. Some floating sections. Correct. And basically what this is saying is as sea levels rise, and we're already seeing some of the effects yes. of this, we're seeing flooding from really not very large right. storms starting to flood into uh, the Boston Harbor. People might remember the image of that dumpster floating through the seaport from last mm-hmm. winter during one of the storms. And so this is Resilient Boston Harbor. That's the name of the plan. And Julie Wood, as part of the Charles River Watershed Association, says we're already seeing some of the effects, not just on the coastline, but in the Charles River itself, some mm-hmm. of the pollutants that we're seeing in there. So we talked with her about does she think this plan is enough? You say this is a good start from the city of Boston, but that more needs to be done. If, if there were one additional thing that you'd like to see the city do that could make a big difference in protecting our waterfront, what would it be? Excellent. Yes, we're definitely commending the mayor and the city on the plan that they've started and the plan that they've put out today. They've been doing a lot of work on climate mitigation. Great to see them um, now putting forth a vision for adapting to, unfortunately, what are the inevitable impacts we will see of climate change. One thing, one additional thing we definitely like to see is really taking a regional approach and um, looking at the region as a whole because the impacts are not going to be isolated to one city. They're not going to be isolated to one site. So we need to all work together on this massive issue. Of course, we all love the beautiful Charles River. Look at it with our cameras every day. (laughs) And you say the Charles is already experiencing some of the effects of climate change for people who want to know what they should be looking for what are they well we're certainly already seeing warmer warmer water warmer mm-hmm. water weather that's a that's a simple one we see the water temperatures rising in the summer um, recently we've also seen a lot of algae blooms and mm-hmm. um, potentially toxin producing cyanobacteria blooms are becoming fairly common in the summer is and that because of the warmer water or why is that? yes that's most likely because mm-hmm. of the warmer water so um, those harmful algae blooms that's Unfortunately, not something we're just seeing in the Charles. That's something really we're seeing across the country and across the globe. These becoming more common. One of the solutions to the flooding that has become an issue, the Charles River Watershed Association calls for is more water storage in Boston. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure, definitely. We are going to see more rainfall and we are going to see more flooding. So we need to be prepared to deal with that. So finding space to direct the water where the water can go, where it's going to have less damage, that's the kind of thing we need to do now. That's the kind of upfront planning. So one opportunity is to use our existing spaces, transition them so that they can serve almost as floodplains or urban floodplains to store that water. So parks and wetlands actually constructing them? Is that That's right. Adding new ones, using the ones we have, adapting the ones we have, and even adding little tiny pocket wetlands right into our city streets and even adding more trees. Something as simple as adding more trees will help water storage. And that would help. And of course, all of this looks like a tremendous amount of money mm-hmm. uh, that the cost is really going to be exorbitant for people who um, uh, you know, say, okay, yes, I understand cl- climate change is happening, but this is all about people making money. I'm not so sure these are the solutions 
solutions we should be paying for. What would you say to them about how necessary all of these changes are? Well, one thing I would say about the cost is that it is large. It definitely is large. Um, but we should also consider the cost of doing nothing and mm. the cost of having to recover. Um, we're seeing that happen across the country. Um, it's far more cost effective if we plan and prepare than if we do nothing. Well, Eric certainly knows more about this yeah. than Paul and I. Eric, I know you have a question for Julie. Well, Julie, I was uh, interested about, have you seen other cities or other places in the world or other places here in the country that are doing the same types of things? Are there other groups that you've talked with where people are trying to be more proactive with these types of issues? Yes, this is really something folks across the country and across the globe are struggling with. Mm -hmm. um, we can learn from others. We can um, help adapt together. Um, communities, of course, like um, Denmark that have dealt mm. with water issues mm. and water inundation um, for many, many for years. Centuries. For centuries, um, for example, are one community mm. where we can potentially have some lessons learned. Well, Julie Wood of the Charles River Watershed Association, we thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. He doesn't just run on Duncan, he literally runs Duncan. Nigel Travis is the former CEO of Duncan Brands from 2009 to July of this year. He's now executive chairman of the board for Duncan Brands and also has a new book out about leadership called The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. And he joins us now. Nigel, thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate having you in. You write that the key to success to business is, quote, questioning everything without trashing anyone. What exactly does that mean? It's really about a very positive culture. It's one I think we've developed at Duncan over the years. It's a way of constantly moving forward, effectively challenging everything you do. Um, it should start with yourself. Get, out, get up every morning and say, what did I do yesterday that was good? What could I do to improve? Mm. Um, and perhaps challenging your colleagues, but ideally, Everyone in the organization should be encouraged in a very positive and civil way mm. to have a say. And, and I think as a result of that, you get the best business solutions, but more importantly, a very positive, thriving, engaged culture. Mm. So you talk about creating this pushback culture. Um, it's probably not as simple as it sounds, right? Because you can't just sort of tell everyone to share their thoughts all the time with management, right? I, th I think it's incredibly difficult, actually. So you, you, you got it right, Paula. I mean, I did some recent book signings, and one signing we had a kind of a therapy session for two people who worked for one company where we talked about the problems with the leadership. Mm. And I think sometimes in companies, this, this approach needs to be started in a micro fashion mm. and then gradually move out. Before we started, we talked about the positive culture here uh, at WBZ. Mm. I think... That's a great start. And, and I think what's important about the title is really two words, is challenge and culture. I think you start with the culture mm. and the challenge gets layered on top. A positive culture that, particularly in an environment now where finding employees is so difficult. Mm. I mean, here in Massachusetts, we're just about at 3% unemployment, yeah. which really is very, in fact, I think it's lower than that. I think it shows that you have to create a culture in a company and then I think you build in the questioning and the pushback and encouraging people to have views on everything. And at Duncan, one of the things we've done very effectively, I think, is have coffee chats down the organisation where more mm. junior employees are encouraged to have their say on anything. 
the next time Paula calls me challenging, I can say this is actually part of developing a good culture. That's um, right. Yeah. You said you actually changed Duncan's family leave policy because of some of this pushback. Can you explain how that yeah, came about? Yeah, well, we had a coffee chat one day, and the way we do a coffee chat is uh, a diagonal slice across the functions. Uh, they tend to be younger people because they're down the organisation, which is good because, you know, you've got someone like me, I'm, I'm now 68, mm -hmm. so there's a big gap um, in terms of age. And when I was working in my junior years, it was very different from what it is now. Mm. And the net result is that you hear a lot of things about what people think or the kind of issues they're struggling with. And one was uh, what happens when there's a new baby in the house sure. uh, and there's joint income families, which if I go way back, wasn't so much the case. Mm -hmm. So we reviewed it and changed the policy as a result. Every time we have these coffee chats, though, we talk about a lot of important subjects. We never talk about who was in the room. We just talk about the conclusions. Mm -hmm. what, what do you do when someone gives their feedback and you say, thanks for sharing, but I really can't change my decision on that? H how is it important to let people know they've been heard, but you might not be able to mm. integrate their idea all the time? Uh, I think that's great. I mean, very early in my career, I, I experienced that. In my first two years working, which was way back in 72 to 74, I worked on attitude surveys at Kraft Foods. <laughs> and, and we had a very simple format because we got all this feedback through surveys and then groups. We always said, if we're going to implement it, you say you're going to do it. If you're not going to implement it, you tell people why. Very important. Uh, but sometimes you have theoretical, a theoretical no. In other words, we really love the idea, but we don't have the money. We don't have the resources to do it. So I think giving feedback is, is absolutely critical. And I think most people will appreciate your honesty. Mm. Right. But don't just leave the vacuum. Go back to them. Did you get any pushback? Duncan just rebranded itself as just Duncan. It's no longer Duncan Donuts, just Duncan. Was there any pushback within well, the company for that decision? I think this was a really well done transition. Dave Hoffman, who's now CEO, mm -hmm. spent a lot of time doing it, doing a lot of research. But we also talked to franchisees throughout the whole process. And, and no one is more challenging than franchisees. They've put their life... Sure. Uh, their money's uh, on the line. Their house, their house mm -hmm. sometimes into the business. So they have a lot of views. They have an awful lot of views, and that's good. Um, and I remember a year ago on International, we went out and had regional meetings. We asked all of them. The only pushback I've heard when we announced it at our convention two weeks ago was from one international franchisee. Everyone else, I think, had got used to the idea, thought about it. Mm -hmm. And I heard this morning that certainly in International, which I'm still currently running, uh, we're having so much demand to move quicker. Mm. I think that's a demonstration that the process we went through was really good. So it was, it was well done and well executed. For someone who wants to take something out of this book, what would you say, because I think it's interesting, it's a massive organization, but you are dealing with those small business owners, yeah. the franchisees. So you have something to say to both groups. What do you think is the most important piece of advice from your book? I, I, I think two or three things have come out of all these discussions. It's helped me synthesize it. One is the most important word is culture. Mm. Culture isn't something that you go into a, um, in, in, into a hardware store and say, I'll have a culture off the top shelf. Mm -hmm. It's something a bit like a, we're talking about your kids, that something is born, you nurture it, you support it, you develop it, mm. and it's, it goes on every day of your Organic. life, right? Mm. Kids are like that. The second thing is, and I've been surprised by how many people have talked to me about this, imagine your own demise. 
Mm. Imagine why your business will be taken out of business. Mm. I mean, you're here in the TV business, in the cable business. Everyone's talking about streaming over the top and things sure. like that. Mm -hmm. We went through all that at Blockbuster. Some things we got right, some we didn't. So imagine your own demise, I truly think, is a major message from the book. And, and it, you know, I started when you used to write out um, your memos on hand and then get someone else to type it. Think how life has changed yeah. over the last 50, 60 years. I think you should also think how you can become more efficient, more effective. Dunkin' Donuts is almost uh, a lifestyle in New England yeah. where it started. It's a place where people meet, they talk about it. There's an SNL skit about the people who go to Dunkin' Donuts. Um, did you feel its significance as a leader here? And as a second part to that, when you expand, and Dunkin' Donuts has expanded hugely, how do you keep that feel of it still being a hometown brand? It's, well, f well firstly, it's a, a wonderful part of um, Boston. Uh, you go on the duck boat tour, I think it's mentioned three times. Sure. And there's the famous story, you go down to this Duncan turn right, right. turn left <laughs> on the next Duncan and all that. So, yeah, I mean, we're very proud to be part of New England and uh, as, a, as a transplant from the other side of the ocean, but an American citizen, mm. I'm really proud to be here in Boston. I think it's a wonderful place to live. Um, but I'm amazed how well it carries across the country. Mm. We've got a lot of transplants, say, in California. That made us incredibly successful in California. Um, and it's interesting that internationally people seem to know the brand, but it's not top of mind. Mm. You need to actually remind them what Dunkin' Donuts is. Mm -hmm. Everyone says, yeah, I've, I've heard of that when you go into a new country. You just need to take it that next step forward. But it's a great company. We've been around for 70 years. I truly believe we'll be around for many more yeah. centuries. Uh, <laughs> and that's why we changed the name. You have to keep moving forward and staying ahead. Keep evolving. Well, the book is The Challenge Culture. Nigel Travis, thanks so much for coming in, dude. Thank you very much, guys. These day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown Miami. Well, the city of Somerville has a new list of recommendations out to expand voter participation, lower barriers for people trying to get involved in politics, and then increase the transparency of the process. We'll go through just a couple of the recommendations, the ones that are the most interesting. They would open voting rights to non-citizens. So these would be residents who are not undocumented, but have not yet become citizens. And they would lower the voting age to 16. And then they would take a bunch of other steps to try to make uh, voting precincts more available to people, closer to them, make them feel safer there. Um, but the two big headlines out of it are lowering the voting age to 16 and then giving voting rights to people who um, are not yet citizens. So, John, I would like to ask you right off the bat, what is what do you say the obvious right off the bat is that Republicans will say this is Democrats trying to get more votes? Well, sure looks like it, right? <laughs> looks Joker like Tony, the jo mayor of Somerville, is a Democrat. Yeah, a staunch Democrat, although he's not uh, he's not expressly endorsing these proposals. Mm -hmm. He's saying they deserve serious consideration mm -hmm. and action, but that falls short of saying, yeah, we should go ahead and do this. Or maybe he's saying that privately. I don't know. But, uh, I mean— uh, these ideas strike me, even in Somerville, as kind of a non-starter. I mean, 16 and 17-year-olds, are you kidding me? As a man who's raised to... I, I mean, listen, I love teenagers. Yeah. Don't yeah. get me, me wrong. Right. But it seems to me 18 is a good cutoff point. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the point at which you were... Um, 
You can enlist at 18. Right. You can you can be enlist in the military. Non citizen residents. I mean, what does that mean? Are we talking about people who are here illegally? I would say absolutely not. I think it's uh, it means people, uh, in the people who are here who are not undocumented, documented but not yet. Citizens. So you're here. You're a you're green a, card holder. Green that's card. Right. a green card. That's a different thing because the, 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 uh, in many cases these people may well own property here, mm-hmm. right? They play. They pay taxes. They're they're, 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 they're going to pay taxes now. You can also, just to take the other side here, you could also make a case that people who are are undocumented also do pay taxes and in some cases do own property. And will argue to have the right to vote if this... So So at what point do you stop? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And we were saying in a prior conversation, at which point somebody says, well, then what's a citizen then? Right? Like who gets to vote? If you're going to allow non-citizens to vote, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so... This report notes that six other Massachusetts cities and towns, just for everyone's edification, have considered policies regarding non-citizens. Cambridge, Brookline, Amherst, Newton, Wayland, and very recently Boston. I believe the city council president mentioned something along yeah. these lines. Um, it does seem to me that if you have your kids in the school, if you're paying taxes, you own property, you have a stake in what the police force might look like and what your politician might want to enact as policy but at some point, obviously, there's going to be pushback from the other side saying, come on, I'm a citizen. I've been here for longer. I, I should have more of a say. In, You're in diluting the franchise. So, right. And you know what else? Uh, unlike, say, uh, a number of places around the country where there's active voter suppression going on and the powers that be are going out of their way to make it difficult, as difficult as possible for people to cast their vote, people who they think aren't politically aligned with them. Come on, around here, it is not hard to vote, mm. okay? The, we're densely, fairly densely populated here. It's not hard to get to your polling place, certainly not in Somerville. It's not hard to get to your nearby polling place. I mean, one of the proposals they're considering is uh, to coordinate and or encourage nonpartisan election day festivities, including free food <laughs> and drink, music, and more right. at nearby polling places. I'm sorry. At some point, you got to be a grown-up and go. It's a civic duty. <laughs> and I yeah. don't think you should be guaranteed a chocolate frosted donut right. in order to get you <laughs> to Very cool. Although it would be nice. It would be nice, obviously. Uh, the one, the two things I want to mention is you mentioned the, the voter suppression. Uh, in Georgia, we have the Secretary of State who's currently running for governor. That is Who outrageous. has blocked 53,000 people from voting. Most of them African American. 70% of them are black. To try to figure out the incentive there, the motive there. Um, in North Dakota... They've now required you to have an address in order to vote, and much of the Native American population there have P.O. boxes instead of home addresses. Very obvious what's going on there. Uh, This is on the other side. You have Democrats in cities like Somerville, very progressive cities, trying to go the other direction and maybe expand beyond what some people would think is is appropriate. Um, What I will say in terms of making it easier to vote and all that, I am 100 percent, I've said this to Paul a million times, in favor of voting being a national holiday. Election day, once every two years, midterms in the presidential election, national holiday. I'd be fascinated to see it tried. I don't know. They probably couldn't just do it on a trial basis, but I'd like to see it tried to see what would happen. Oh, hey, um, as we start World Series week, predictions? I so- say socks and six games. I say socks and four. I think wow. it's a sweet. Whoa. Well, I'm going to split the difference and say socks and five. All right. 
I mean, they, you know, they've they've given they gave one game to New York, one game to Houston. True. Go keep going with that trend. Just Jonathan, by the way, is loving that we're talking about the Red Sox. Yeah. Yes, but you know, huge sports. Look at the well, you look good in that Red Sox jersey and hat <laughs> you've got on. I haven't How seen one with a propeller lately, but that's How really you, Jonathan. Jonathan is famously <laughs> anti-sports. He doesn't like the sports. I'm not anti-sports. I just anti-talking about it. Well. He just sort of, ab- you know, abdicates any interest. <laughs> I, I abstain. He's abstained. From- That's the okay. word. Here's, here's your next documentary. Okay. A documentary about what it's like for people who live in arguably the most sports-mad city in the world <laughs> to hate sports. I don't hate sports, John. It's sure fun. you do. <laughs> you do hate sports. Admit I, it. I, Come and, clean. You're among <laughs> friends. And by the way, it's fine. I have no problem. I just can't participate in most conversations. Right there. Well, okay. okay. There's you your just starting point. Stay out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the, like a conversation about keeping up with the Kardashians. Right. Exactly. Some yes. such yes. show that you have no Or when Paula starts talking about the Royals. Yeah, royal family, that's case. a whole other thing. The story. agony of being an anti sportsophobic in a sports mad culture. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, it's true. It is it's just a good, it's everywhere. It's a good concept, it's everywhere. right? People right. have much harder lives than that. <laughs> <laughs> Send us your ideas, subscribe and share. Contact us at Studio BZ Pod or I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. I'm at Liam WBZ. And at Keller at Large, but be nice. <laughs> and we'll, we'll be seeing you. you. Oh, all right. No, no, never. Never. It's on the list. Thank you, guys. I'm sorry. No, no worries. Paul and I must run to the promos now. All right. Good job, guys. Thank you.